with David J. Maloney. This week, David talks with legendary singer, songwriter, and producer Al Cooper. And now, here's your host, David J. Maloney. We are back. Uh, tonight's featured guest is a legendary singer, songwriter, composer, producer, and musician. Uh, if musicians had resumes, his would be one of the longest and most eclectic, spanning roughly 63 years and including songwriting, production work, or, or playing with artists from Gary Lee Lewis and the Playboys to Bob Dylan to his own super session work with Mike Bloomfield and Stephen Stills, as well as with Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Leonard Skinner, The Tubes, Jimi Hendrix, members of the Beatles, and the list goes on and on. Uh, he currently hosts CooperCast on Podchaser and other formats. I'm so very pleased to introduce the legendary Al Cooper to the show. Al, welcome. Hello there. You are one of the most storied musicians out there, but a lot of people don't know your early story. Um, when did the music bug first hit you? When I was six, um, my parents took me to uh, one of their friends' houses, as opposed to getting a babysitter. And they had a piano there. And, and I thought, well, I never have tried to do this. And so I sat at the piano, and fortunately, I was out of earshot of the rest of them. And by the end of their visit, I had figured out how to play the number one song which was Tennessee Waltz. I think it was by K-Star. And um, on the Black Keys. And, uh, and that started me off. I've read when you entered junior high, your music world kind of changed. Uh, from what I understand, you had made some new friends at a new school and they introduced you to some new music. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, um, yeah, I mean, previous to that, I, I lived in a, neighborhood in, in Queens, and it was, I wouldn't say upscale, but it was on the way to upscale. And, um, and I had a lot of friends and everything. But when I had to go from sixth grade to seventh grade, I had to change schools. And the school was in a, a, a less savory neighborhood. And so um, I, I had to take a bus every day and, and I had to deal with new people that I, I'd never come across before. And uh, first I was a little uptight, but then I saw that er everybody was the same, basically. And, um, and so I, I heard new music. Uh, I met new people. And... Uh, and my life changed. True, those friends snuck you into their church so you could hear the music. And, and was that your first introduction to, to gospel? No, no. I, I would hear gospel music on the radio. Um, at, at my house with my parents, um, at first I used to um, hide a flashlight and a book under my bed because I, I wouldn't sleep much. And I'd wake up and I'd take the flashlight and I'd read the book. Then my father got one of those uh, uh, battery-operated uh, radios that had uh, an earphone jack 
but it was only uh, one ear, one ear, and you know, and mono. But by by that time, I I was uh, really into music, and so uh, I stayed up all night and I listened to bizarre stations, and I started to get into um, R and B music. Your your teen years. Um... How much did your parents really know about your music life and your, your early successes? Because I've read about a little bit of that, but I didn't want to go too much off on a tangent. Well, not much, because I would, I would go to New York whenever I could from Queens, which was like a 45-minute subway ride. And, uh, and I started getting into the music business. But when I was 14, I got offered uh, a chance to play with a really big group. And, uh, and I had to work really hard to uh, be able to do this. And my parents didn't like it. Was that the Royal Teens? Yes. How did you find yourself in that band? Well, about um, six months before, I started going to uh, the... Um, one of the music buildings on Broadway in Manhattan. And I started meeting people and, and I was trying to do something. And one of the offices I found was uh, uh, this guy, Leo Rogers, who managed the Royal Teens and other bands. And he, um, he auditioned me as a guitar player, which is what I was doing at the time. And he asked me if I could um, go play a gig with that band, uh, the Royal Teens, in uh, three days. And I said, well, how do we get there? He says, well, I, I drive, I drive. And, and I stay there and then we come home. So Short Shorts hits number one. What was it like being that young with and in a band with a number one hit at that time? Well, it was, you know, fantastic. It was really fun, but, but we, didn't get, we didn't get to do that much. Um, and then, then we played um, like a 10 day show in New York with, you know, like 40 acts on it. You know, and we'd go out and play, everybody would play two or three songs. And that was when I really got uh, addicted because I met all these other people, people that I, it was records I bought and everything. It was, uh, it was sensational. Did, did and, you even try to juggle school and music or did music always win? No, no, I tried. I actually went to college for a year and a half to study music. And, uh, but I'm sorry. <laughs> At that time, was there anyone you looked up to musically or wanted to be like? Well, I had friends that were good musicians. And, and of course, I started in a neighborhood band. And, you know, we'd play um, uh, churches and schools and stuff like that. And uh, private parties and like that. And we were called the Aristocats. I'm, I'm still close with everybody that was in that band. So at, at some point you get a job as a professional songwriter while you were in the Royal Teens. 
And what led to that? I mean, had you already been writing songs? Yes, but but um, the 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 leader of the routines was a songwriter, and he was very good. But but he was the leader of the band, so uh, I didn't even try to do that. And and I mean, he became very famous over the years. It's Bob Goyo. Um, so how did you come to meet Erwin Levine and Bob Brass? Uh, well, I, I went to a publisher and um, uh, they were interested in signing me, but they wanted to see if I could work with these two other writers that they had. And they just wrote words, the two guys, uh, Brass and Erwin Levine. And we were all Jewish, which was a great coincidence. And, uh, uh, and so he... He hooked me up with them and we started writing together and uh, it worked. And so, you know, I, I, we'd come to work every day and uh, we'd write songs and, uh, and people would record them. And, uh, and no, nothing much happened till uh, this diamond ring. Yeah so, yeah, so the three of you shared credits with this diamond ring and, and a few others. Um, is there a memory or, or story that sticks out to you about that time in particular? Not really. I just met, there were, uh, we left that, that company that put us together mm -hmm. after about a year. And we went to this other guy who I knew, whose name was Aaron Schroeder. And he had just bought all of Dick Clark's companies. Oh, wow because uh, Dick Clark had to divest himself of those because otherwise he was going to prison. So, uh, so it was a quick transition. Uh, and so he had all these songs and, and this giant catalog of hit songs and everything. And it changed everything because uh, we could reach more people now. And so, so uh, we left the other place and went to Aaron, who I was with originally, before I met the two guys. And so the three of us started writing uh, for this company called January Music. And we had uh, uh, the first record I ever had as a writer was called My Kind of Love by a guy named Anastasia on Lori Records. That was my first thing. I was very thrilled to see my name on a record. So you're young, you're meeting all these musicians and industry people, and at some point you befriend Tom Wilson, who invites you to the studio the very day Bob Dylan was recording Like a Rolling Stone. Now, I'm not gonna ask you to repeat how you came to playing the now famous organ riffs on that song, because I know you're tired of telling the story. And, and, and I would invite, um, those who are watching the show uh, to get Al's autobiography, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the show, as it really is a fantastic, th this whole thing about the Bob Dylan thing is a fantastic story of determination uh, combined with talent, and probably more talent than I think you give yourself credit for, and maybe a little opportunism. But I do want to ask you though, Al, was that kind of a back to the future butterfly effect moment? Like if that moment doesn't happen the way that it did, does your career, relationships, friendships, maybe even life take a different path? Well, A, I was very good friends with Tom Wilson. And, uh, and it never, we, we never discussed uh, Bob Dylan especially. But I mean, he would take me to um, uh, New York Giant football games 
and we and we had you know uh, fourth row seats on the uh, thirty yard line, and and I liked this, and but I really liked him. He was a great guy, and uh, and I spent a lot of time in his office, and and that's why um, I ended up being invited to the Dylan session as a spectator, not as a player. And then, you know, what happened, happened. And, uh, and that really changed my life. And uh, at the end of the, like a Rolling Stone session, uh, everybody left and it was just me and Bloomfield and uh, Bob. And we were very comfortable together, which I was very surprised about. And, and I thought I, I should get my bass player in on this because uh, he was really good. And he, at the time he was playing with the Exciters, which was a, a, a black group and they had a hit record, Tell Them. Tell them that you're never gonna leave it, tell them that, like that. And, uh, and so I, I, I asked Bob if I could do that, you know, right there. And uh, Bob said it was okay. So, uh, so I called him right from the studio and I said, can you make a session like, because his next session was five days from then. And, and I was asked to be there. And I said, can I call my bass player friend? I said, because I, he's really great. And I think, you know, he would fit in great with, with the rest of us. And he said, uh, sure. And so I called Harvey. And the next time we got together, there was uh, Bloomfield, uh, Harvey, me, Bob, and uh, Paul Griffin, who was a, a, a great studio player, keyboards. And so he, he played piano and I played organ. And Bloomfield played guitar, Bob played guitar. And we started working on that album, um, Highway 61 Revisited. And, uh, and it became like, you know, an everyday thing. But Tom Wilson was gone, inexplicably. And there was somebody else there. And it was weird for me. So that moment kind of thrusts you into being a, a bit of an in-demand organ player. Um, and, and you later not, get- not, not, till, not till that record came out. Yeah, because then when it hits, everybody kind of wants that sound, right? Because it became kind of a popular sound. Is that kind of how that ended up occurring? Well, for some reason, uh, which I, I, I still don't understand to this day, uh, uh, people thought I was a great organ player and wanted to hire me for sessions. Uh, I think it was more because that I was playing with Bob and uh, more than what I was playing because it was sort of early in my career, although I had played on sessions before as, as a keyboard player. Uh, but I was, uh, until that day, concentrating on my guitar playing. And then the organ thing, you know, happened. And I said, so I'll play the organ. And I had to, you know, learn a lot more about the organ in order to do that. And you later get called upon to work with, I guess, The Who, The Rolling Stones, George Harrison, a bunch of others. And you play on Electric Ladyland with Jimi Hendrix. But he was already a friend of yours by that time, right? Well, I wouldn't say a friend, but we'd, we'd, we knew each other. We met at um, Monterey Pop, 
where I was a, a stage manager. Um, my friend was in charge of, you know, the whole staging thing, uh, Chipmunk. And so uh, he asked me if I wanted to go. And I said, sure, are you kidding me? He said, but you know, uh, you're going to have to work. I said, uh, no problem. And I ended up playing, you know, like a, a short solo set. And, uh, and the Blues Project was there playing, you know, without me because I, I had left the Blues Project. And, and uh, so it was, you know, it, that was a, a, a big experience. So tell me about your first jam session with Jimmy. How did, I mean, how did that happen? Well, he invited me to the studio to play. So I went and I got there early and I came in, there were a bunch of guitars all set up, you know, black Stratocasters. You always played the same guitar. For those who don't know what a black Stratocaster is, it's what he was playing at Monterey and what he was playing that day. But there were about four of them uh, on stands. And I knew that they were strung upside down so that uh, he could play him, Mr. Lefty. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so I picked one up and I was, and I, I couldn't really play it. It was too stupid. And, and, and just at that moment he walked in and he said, uh, hi, he said, you like that guitar? I said, I don't know. Somebody's got it strung all screwed up and I can't play it. He said, well, why don't you keep it? I said, because it's yours. And, and I said, don't be ridiculous. And um, we went and played the session. And the next day, his roadie brought it to my house. Oh, wow. And I said, well, I can't turn this down. And I had it for quite a while. And, um, and I moved a lot. Uh, uh, you know, in the course of my career, I moved to different cities and, uh, and my house always got broken into. Oh, geez. Because people knew that I had that. I kept it under my bed and no one ever found it. I mean, I got, my house got robbed at least six times oh, and, and, and no, nobody ever looked there. So it was a great hiding place. A few years ago, I, I sold it because I was tired of people breaking into my house. So is there any special moment or maybe conversation that you had with Jimmy that you've never really told anyone that if you don't share it, the world would never get to know about? Not really. The, the best thing is that we lived half a block from each other. So we saw each other all the time. And uh, uh, I mean, in, in clubs and restaurants, walking down the street, buying the newspaper, we always saw each other. So, uh, so we got to play together a lot because uh, jam sessions were the rage at the time. So when a club would close about 12.30 or 1 a.m., uh, the people that were gonna stay in the club would be there and then they would lock the doors and then we'd play all night. And there were about three or four clubs that had that situation. And one of them later on, um, he bought that club 
and made it into Electric Lady Studios. So you also played horn and piano and you can't always get what you want. Were those parts pre-written, improvised, a little of both? No, always improvised. I mean, I think that's why people hired me because they never put music in front of me or told me what to play. Even the Rolling Stones. That's cool. So, so and I, by, by the time they called me, uh, I understood this. I, I knew what I had to do when I went to the studio. And, it, and you know, and that's what I would do. And it usually worked. Uh, I mean, to the client's satisfaction. And then, you know, sometimes to the charts satisfaction. So they called me and I'd never been to England. So I thought, well, I gotta do this, the, the Rolling Stones. I mean, what's next, the Beatles? And, uh, and so I went, but I went five days early. And, and in the five days I bought records and clothes. I went to, you know, I bought about 40 albums and, and a lot of clothes. As a matter of fact, at one of the clothing stores, I bumped into Brian Jones. Oh, wow. And he said, uh, oh, you're going to come play with us? And I said, you bet. I'll be there. That was that. It was, uh, it was like most other sessions, except it was the Rolling Stones. And it, everybody was really nice to me. And, uh, and I asked if I could, uh, after we got the take of... Uh, the song, I asked if I could put piano on it, and they let me do that. And uh, everybody was happy. And then they put, uh, then when I got back to New York, I said, boy, it would be great to put a French horn on the intro. And I had a part in my head. I, I still played French horn from when I was in college. And so uh, I rented a French horn. And uh, the hardest part was sneaking the tapes into Columbia Records. Because at this time, uh, when I got back from England, uh, I was uh, working as a, a full-time record producer at Columbia Records. And Columbia Records had its own studios uh, all over the place, all over the country. You couldn't just walk in with a tape box. So uh, I, I worked out a way that I could walk in with a tape box. But then the, the hardest part was walking out with a tape box. But I did that too. And, uh, and we put on uh, uh, the French horn. And then I, I sent it back to them. Speaking of the Beatles, at some point you get the call to work with George Harrison. And, and if I understand the story correctly, I think maybe he might've been on vacation or something at, at the time. How does that call go? I lived there in England at the time. And, um, and I got a call uh, asking if I was interested in doing that. What a foolish call. And uh, uh, so I went and one of the other musicians on the session uh, lived near me. Uh, in London. And so I was able to get a ride there because I would have had a hard time getting there. And he also had been there before because it wasn't actually out in the middle of a block or something like that. It was pretty hidden away. 
And so I w went with him and the night before, the day before I got a call from George on my machine saying, uh, uh, I have this, I have that, I have this, I have that. Is there anything that you want me to rent that you play? Let me know and I'll, and I'll have it there. And I thought, that's nice. I said, but I'll probably be okay. So I, I called him back and I got a machine and I told him, no, I think I'm fine. Piano and organ would be great. And so I drove with this other guy and we got there and he met us. Oh, oh no, no. Uh, uh, it was pouring out. It was just coming down as bad as it can come down. And we got there and when we pulled up to the house, there were at least a hundred newspaper people lined up there because this was the day after John Lennon got shot. Oh, geez. So we had to get through those people to get in and the, the caretaker got, got us in. But there were people standing in the rain out there, uh, no, no roofs over their heads or anything. I would say at least 200 reporters. Had you known when you were pulling up that day that that had already happened? Had the news already gotten to you by that point? Yeah, I'm, I'm a night owl. I only sleep like uh, two to four hours a night. This from my childhood. And so I heard it all on the, uh, on the TV mostly. And uh, uh, so I knew what was going on. And, uh, and Ringo was there as well. Ringo was on the session. So you had, you know, half the Beatles there. So it was, uh, you know, pretty somber at first. And then um, sl very slowly we started playing music. And then it, it, it was sort of a, a good cure-all for the, the Beatles that were there, I think. You, you mentioned earlier the Blues Project. Um, it seems like through a lot of the steps of your career, you, you I mean, obviously gospels and, and organ music kind of go hand in hand. Do you feel that you've always kind of kept a connection with, with gospel? Oh yeah. Well, when I lived in Los Angeles, some of the greatest music churches are there and, um, and, I was sort of scared to go because of the black-white thing. And, uh, and then some background singers that I worked with invited me to like the best church in LA on a Sunday. So would you be interested in going? <laughs> I said, yeah, I really would. Can I get, get a ride with you as well? And they said, yeah. And that was one of the greatest days of my life to see that in person and, and watch the audience, the congregation, it was unbelievable, just fantastic. And it's, it strengthened my, my gospel love even more than it already was. And then I would go back there on, on my own because I saw that it wasn't uh, particularly uh, dangerous. And, uh, and, and that was a great thing to be able to go to that church and 
to to see uh, musicians and groups sing, and uh, and the people in the audience just go berserk. So it was fantastic, you know. I, I I'm Jewish. I went to temple. Very boring. <laughs> this was spectacular. So that's another day that really changed my life. Um, slightly off topic. Um, I mean, you've had such a, a storied career that it's, it's when somebody has a rumor, you're, somebody's inclined to go, well, it's probably true because all these other incredible things have happened. You know, like if somebody goes, yeah, he bumped into Jim Morrison when he was going on a date in New York City, you know, and, and you know, it, those are the types of things that, People go, yeah, I could see that happening to Al. You know what I mean? Because so many of those things actually did happen to you. Um, did you have some? I, I slightly off topic. Have you had? Did you have some influence in helping Joni Mitchell get her big break? I heard that somewhere. That's true, but it was it was it was so unplanned that uh, I'll tell you the story. Uh, at the time, I was in the Blues Project. And the drummer in the Blues Project, Roy Blumenfeld, was going out with her. And they had just broke up. And I bumped into her in a bar, which turned out to be like around the corner from where she lived. And she invited me to her apartment. And so I went and she started playing me songs. And I'd never heard her before. I never heard of her. And I never heard her music. All I knew is, you know, it was Roy's girlfriend. But like I said, they had split up. And she just played me all these songs. And, and the next day, I was supposed to go to Newport to play with uh, Dylan. So Judy Collins was a good friend of mine by this time. And so she played me these songs and I just went, you know, however, you know, whatever people did when they heard Joni Mitchell. Yeah. And, uh, and so I called Judy Collins at about midnight, which I never would do. And, and she was on the board of governors of Newport. And she said, hello. I said, I know it's late and I know that you're probably leaving at six in the morning to go to Newport. And she said, five in the morning. I said, oh, I said, well, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry because, and I told her the story of where I was and what I felt. And would she meet Joni outside her apartment and take her to Newport with her because she could play some songs in the car and Judy could see what I saw. And then maybe she could play at Newport. And that's what happened. It's, it's funny because, you know, you know, they, they have that thing about your desert island albums, you know, the five that you take on a desert island that you'd never get tired of. And one of them for me is Child is Father of the Man. Another one is Court and Spark. So there, that's an interesting, you know, uh, tie in there. Uh, you know, let's talk about Blood, Sweat and Tears. Before we chat about the music, um, how did you all decide on the name for 
the band. I, I heard there was a story maybe in, involving maybe Hendrix and B.B. King, and that may be a story in itself. Tell me the story you heard. <laughs> I just heard you were jamming with Hendrix and B.B. King, and somehow the name came about. Is that is that kind of how it happened or no? Nah. Well, that's the problem with, that's the thing with you, Al. You hear rumors and because so many crazy things have happened, like the Joni Mitchell story, you go, okay, I can see that happening too. <laughs> well, when I left the Blues Project, I had tried to get, um, Danny Kalb was the leader of the Blues Project. There was no question about that. And I really wanted to add horns to the blues project and do what I was eventually going to do. And he turned me down. He said, no, he said, we haven't even begun to do what we could do as a quintet. And I said, okay. And then I soon quit. I wanted to start a horn band. I had some songs written and I wanted to do them with horns. So I, I looked around and uh, I put a band together little by little, auditioning people. And uh, uh, Steve Katz su uh, suggested uh, Bobby Columbia. And, and he was in the Blues Project too, Steve Katz. So he ended up leaving as well. And, uh, and slowly and surely we put this band together. And we auditioned a lot of people, horn players especially. And this one knew that one, and that one knew this one, and that's how we got the band. And it's pretty amazing because uh, Bobby Columbia was an incredible drummer, probably still is. And Jim Fielder was an amazing bass player. And they were they were a great combination. And and so we we put a band together. And then we started rehearsing uh, these songs and, and Steve had some songs he wanted to do. And, and that's pretty much what happened. At the time, did you, did you feel like you were finally making the music that you had always envisioned kind of specifically that, that you wanted to, to make yourself? Well, for the first time, um, I was the leader of a band. And, and so, uh, uh, I mean, you know, professionally, th that meant something to me too. And so it, it, it was a lot of work, but um, I had, I was already playing on a lot of sessions on people's records. And, um, <clears throat> and I'd met John Simon, the producer, when uh, I was playing on Simon and Garfunkel records. And Paul and Artie were from Queens, and I and I sort of knew them from uh, when I was in the Royal Teens, because they had a hit record at the same time called "Hey Schoolgirl." Uh, I forget what they were called at the time, but um, it was big. And then we then I ended up playing a gig where the Royal Teens and they were on the bill and. Um, that might have been the first time that I met them. So you wrote several tracks on, on Childless Father Man, including uh, I Can't Quitter, um, I'll Love You More Than You'll Ever Know, which is probably my favorite. Um, do you have a favorite from that album, or is that like trying to pick which child is your favorite? Is that tough to do? 
Oh, I can't do that. Yeah. I had a feeling it would be kind of like that. You mentioned horns earlier. Frankly, I kind of miss them in current music. It seems like the sax kind of comes in and out of style and pop music a few times. I mean, I remember back in the day when there were bands like uh, Blood, Sweat and Tears, Chicago, uh, Phil Collins sometimes had a whole horn section. Even Bruce Springsteen had Clarence Clemens. I mean, ska, which of course is somewhat horn driven. Do you think brass will make a comeback at some point or have the genres and production methods gone so far to one direction that they're pretty much gonna be extinct outside of say jazz? I'm so far gone from popular music that I don't know and I don't care. Well, let's move on then. So you, so you, you end up leaving um, Blood, Sweat and Tears, which you were obviously instrumental in, in forming over creative differences to take your own path. And then you record Super Session with uh, Mike Bloomfield and Stephen Stills. How did that James session come about? Well, I had, as an artist, I had nothing to do. I had no, I had no plans for a solo album or I hadn't written anything that made me want to do a solo album. So I thought, well, why not do a jam session album with Bloomfield? Because, um, I mean, we stayed friends ever since that uh, session, although we lived on, uh, you know, opposite coasts, but we'd, we'd see each other. And, uh, and I got to know his family and he got to know my family and it was like that. And his father, you know, <laughs> was a gigantic uh, uh, businessman and uh, he invented uh, the, the machines that make coffee uh, in the restaurants and coffees and they're called Bloomfield machines. I guarantee you, even today, if you go in, there's a Boonfield machine in a place where they make coffee. Huh. So he, he came from a ridiculously wealthy family. And, and he didn't, you know, that wasn't a part of his life. Season of the Witch. Holy crap. Um, I mean, did you know when you laid it down that no. it was incredible as it was? I mean, did you feel it being great in real time as you played it or only after it was further down well, the road? Was, you it was that? my first experience with Steve Stills. And um, what happened was uh, I had uh, two days booked in the studio. I didn't think it would take longer than two days to, you know, of playing all night to get enough for an album. To, I can't do it. I'm not feeling well. And I said, are you serious? I said, I, I have the session booked and everything. He said, I can't do it. I said, okay, bye. And I took my address book out and I started calling LA guitar players. And we were in LA. We did the session in LA as a concession to Bloomfield. And, uh, uh, and I had Steve Stills number and I, I called I think two other people first, but they couldn't do it because it was that night. You know, there were, I, I didn't, it wasn't the next day, it was that night. And so uh, a lot of people couldn't do it. And I called him, I hardly knew him, but he had given me his phone number. And I told him the story and he said, uh, so we're just gonna jam, right? I said, yeah. 
He said, you, you know, no, no song songs. I said, not really, no. I said, if we do a song song, it'll be one that we all know. Or it'll have two chords in it. And um, he said, yeah, it sounds like fun. So here comes Steve Stills. And like I say, I hardly know him. And we had gotten uh, probably a side of the album the night before with Bloomfield. And I knew that. So I knew what I had to get on the stills side. And uh, we got it. And uh, uh, not only did we get it, but as you say, uh, a Season of the Witch was amazing because of him. I mean, I called the title. I was glad he knew what the song was. And uh, uh, so it was Donovan, right? Yeah, Donovan, I think, did it first, yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, it was his song. He wrote it. Yeah. And um, at that time, I don't know how many people, you know, knew Donovan songs, you know, like that. He had like maybe three albums out. And, uh, but it's only three chords. So it's not so hard. That's one of the reasons I thought of it. And, uh, and we did it. And one of the greatest things on it is the last chord which Steve Stills plays. After I, I turned the organ off and the organ just went And then he hit this chord that was just sensational. Like it was programmed, like we knew it was gonna happen. And I said, this is great. This is really good. And somehow we got enough for an album in two nights. And I overdub horns uh, on certain stuff because I could. And, and, and for the first time in a situation like that, I was the boss, which had never really happened before because there was a producer and he was the boss. And I said, wow, I'm producing this. This is unbelievable. And so like all these other things that happened to me, here we are. And they put it out and the record company didn't particularly know what to think of it. So they just threw it out there. And, uh, uh, and I began a relationship with the art department because I, I love album covers and I'm really into that. And so I, I spent a lot of time on the uh, album cover and I had a, I hired a photographer for the sessions. So I had that. Thank God I had, or, you know, there wouldn't have been any pictures on it. And so that's the story of Super Session. So you then discover and produce the first three albums for one of the 70s most famous bands, Leonard Skinner. And I know you've told this story a lot, but with Skinner being particularly popular with so much of our local audience, um, can you share for our viewers how you came across those guys and what led you to signing them? Well, the first thing is um, I, I decided to move to uh, Atlanta. I lived in New York. And, and I heard a lot of good music in Atlanta. And, and there was a studio I really liked there. And so 
I wanted to move there and do everything that I did out of that studio. And so I made a deal with the guy who owned the studio, who was a songwriter. And I, and I knew, you know, some of his work. And he was a really nice guy. And plus, uh, the, the house band for the studio was the Atlanta Rhythm Section. And they were fantastic. And they were also wonderful people. So I had the owner of the studio, wonderful person, and the house band, wonderful people. So the first thing I did was I recorded uh, uh, my backup band and uh, I called them Frankie and Johnny. And I, and I uh, sold it to Warner Brothers and, uh, and we put it out, uh, well, we recorded it there and, and um, most of the guys from the Atlanta Rhythm Session section, and it was great because they were great. Frankie and Johnny were great. And they were, they were my band when I played live, except for the drummer. And I used uh, the drummer from the Atlanta Rhythm Section. And uh, came out great. And, and the guys' names were Frankie and Johnny. So I said, why don't we call the album the Sweetheart Sampler and put, uh, make the cover like the cover of uh, the Sweetheart Sampler. The, uh, the, the people that, Whitman, I think it was. Whitman Chocolates. Yeah, that put out the Sweetheart Sampler. It was a huge uh, uh, Sweetheart Sampler. Uh, the candy yep. box was one of the top selling things in America. So I said, it'd be such a great album cover if we can get clearance from them. And uh, so we put it out, it had the Sweetheart Sampler cover and uh, we got sued and they had to pull it down. And they were very angry with me, Warner Brothers, because it could have been called anything, could have been called Frankie and Johnny. And uh, so the, the worst thing was that nobody got to hear it because mm. it was a good record. And, um, and I'm working on a project now uh, of four CD set of all the things I did, pieces of all the things I did in my career as many of them unreleased as, as I can conjure up. Do you know the label Omnivore? No, I'm unfamiliar. They're, they're out of New York. And, and they put out records like that. You know, this is going to be a weird thing. But, but I met with them uh, two or three years ago. And they, they came from Los Angeles and sat in my house here in Boston, and I played them 193 songs in the two days, and they were pretty much sold. And then the guy that, that they put me with was bad. Mm. And so it didn't work. And I let it go. And I was upset because I liked the 
the people that came to my house, the woman that was involved. It just laid around for a few years. And then I said, I really want to put this out. I mean, now, now that I was, now that I am so much older and, uh, and I can't go out and play gigs and I can't travel and I can't drive. Um, I said, now is the time to put this out because I'm, I have no other albums to make. And this is four CDs of all this stuff that's laying in the house that people might enjoy. And so I called that woman up again. And, and I said, I don't know. I'll tell you why we fell apart. It was that guy that worked for you. He doesn't still work for you, does he? She said, no. I said, let's do it. And she said, okay. And we went back into the mode of uh, putting it together. Now, I've been working on it for um, seven or eight months now. And I'm still going through stuff in the house, you know, making sure I don't miss anything. I'm very excited about it. I don't have a title yet. I mean, originally, I was going to call it unreleased. But some of it might have been released, but not heard. I wanted to put, um, I'm opening it with four versions of this diamond ring, because that was the start. the start for me. One is the demo that I made when I was writing with the two other guys, because the three of us wrote that song. And, and there was the studio singer who also was a songwriter and he worked at the same place we did. And so uh, I would hire him sometimes to sing our demo because otherwise it was the three of us singing, which was not anything like this guy singing. His name was Jimmy Radcliffe. He's deceased now. And he actually had a, a single produced by Backrack that came out in his lifetime. It wasn't a hit, but it was a great record, and he was a great singer. And I had all my demos that were sort of R&B-ish. Uh, he would sing them. And so this was some of the stuff I pulled up. And uh, so I had the original demo of this Diamond Ring, which was nothing like the Gary Lewis record. Huh. It was a black record. That song was written for the Drifters. And the demo that we made was to play for the drifters. So it's really humorous that Gary Lewis did it. So other people recorded it using the Jimmy Radcliffe demo as you know what made them record it. So there were two records, two singles of it out. So I started the box set with um, uh, Jimmy Radcliffe's demo. And then the, the two black versions that came out. And then the Gary Lewis record, which is hilarious after you hear the black records. It's really, it's humorous. And then, you know, you, you tell anybody that doesn't know, this was a number one record, this Gary Lewis record. And, you know, and it changed my life in many ways. But did I like it? Nah, not after the demo. 
demo is so good. So here's a great chance to play the demo for everybody and a great way to start the, the collection. So, so you have all these, these lost and found basically tracks that you'll be. I have, I have close to everything I ever did on the computer. Well, there's your title, Lost and Found. Um, having been on both sides of the studio glass, um, uh, do you have a side that you prefer being on or do you prefer live performances? Before I stopped playing, I, I had a wonderful band called the Funky Faculty. And I moved here to Boston to teach at Berkeley. And, and so these were other faculty members that I met when I was trying to put a band together and and they were such great players you know it's like i can't believe these guys are playing with me you know because they they played you know they played circles around me but i wrote the songs and uh and i was a good arranger and and they were a great band so uh, we played all over the world and uh, had a great time, uh, recorded stuff that was probably on my, my last albums. And, uh, and I'm still friends with them. And if I was ever going to play anything, you know, it would be with them. What song, whether it be yours or someone else's, gives you personally the, the most absolute joy to play? I really like Amy Winehouse's version of I Love You More Than You Love. It kills me. The first time I heard it, I was like, wow, is she good or what? Because it was, it was something, really something to have Donny Hathaway record it. He was one of my heroes and it just happened. Uh, a, a weird thing with the producer, and and he the producer called me, and he said, uh, "I'm cutting one of your songs with uh, Donny Hathaway," and I went, "Wow!" I said, "I'm a huge Donny Hathaway fan." I said, "What song are you doing?" He said, "Something going on," which was uh, yeah. another track from yeah. the Blood Sweat yeah, Tears album. Something out. going on. Yep. And I'm thinking, he picked the wrong song. Should have been, I love you more than you love me. So it was late in life. And I said, I think you picked the wrong song. It was Jerry Wexler, who I was talking to. It was the, pretty much the A&R head of Atlantic Records. And, you know, was involved in a lot of great records. And, and he said, what do you mean? Donnie loves it. I said, Play him I Love You More Than You'll Ever Know from the album you got that from. He said, all right. And then he called me back and he said, you were right. I said, God bless you. He said, I'll send you a copy when we're done. And so th the copy comes by messenger and I'm all excited. And I take a bath, have breakfast, smoke a joint and put it on. And it's, it's fantastic. 
And then it comes to the last verse where it says, I'm only flesh and blood, but I'll do anything that you demand. I could be president of General Motors or just a tiny grain of sand. And one of the things I was looking forward to was him singing, I could be president of General Motors. And he didn't sing it. And I stopped the record when I was listening. And I said, oh, my God. And I, I didn't even finish listening to it. I called Jerry Wexler. And, and he said, did you get the record? I said, yeah. I said, how come you changed the lyric? He said, what are you talking about? I said, I could be president of General Motors. He said, ow. A black person could never be president of General Motors. And I said, you are so stupid. And I hung up the phone and I never talked to him again. And it broke my heart because the line that they came up with wasn't even close to that line. It was, I could be king of everything, which is terrible lyric. And if a black person couldn't be president of General Motors, how could he be king of everything? And, you know, that ended my experience with some. Jerry Wexler, and, and ruined that record for me, and also ruined every record that came after it because they used King of Everything. They threw the other lyric away. That's a story I haven't told much. You were telling me a few weeks ago that when you produce, you essentially listen for what's missing and, and put it in. Um, when you hear music, do you constantly find yourself hearing things that you would have added or produced differently? And does that impact the way that you enjoy music personally? No, it's the other way around. It's I hear stuff I wouldn't have thought of. And I go, this is fabulous. You know, that's what really gets me. Like um, <clears throat> one of the things that, that um, woke me up the most was uh, Sly and the Family Stone. And it had horns and it had great songwriting. It had amazing singing. And that's why I liked it so much. And, and that, that was a great example of, you know, of what, what got to me. And they, they really did get to me. And, and I, 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 I got to meet them and everything. And I saw them a lot because we both recorded at the same recording studio. Is there an artist or band you always wanted to work with but never, never got to? Hmm. Good question. Well, I would have liked to work with, you know, a, a singer I really liked. And, you know, would have loved to have worked with Amy Winehouse or Donny Hathaway or Sly Stone. Um, but, you know, that didn't happen. And, uh, uh, and so, you know, I'd probably climb out of the house if I found someone and make a record. Now, on the flip side of that, is there an artist or band that you had always wanted to work with and then got to work with? And did that experience live up to your expectations? Well, that would be Leonard Skinner, which we didn't talk about. We started to. And, okay. and, and so... Well, and, yes, I, I see what happened. Yes. So, so you discover and produce the first three albums. Um, yes. And I know, you, like you said, you've told the story a lot. But our local audience, I mean, this show airs largely in Alabama. 
And so Sweet Home Alabama, every time that comes on, everybody goes nuts. What were your first impressions of, of Sweet Home Alabama and Freebird when you heard them? And, and what changes, if any, did you make to those songs that improved them from when you first heard them? Or did they not need much? Well, in Sweet Home Alabama, um, when he says, uh, well, I heard Mr. Young sing about her, um, I overdub myself imitating Neil Young singing Southern Man. And I put it in the background so you could barely hear it. Did you ever hear it? Now I'm going to listen for it. And, and oh, okay. Well, so you didn't hear it. I didn't. It's got to be, it's, it, I'm presuming it's subtle. But the thing is, is it, what's, now I'm going to definitely, I'm going to have to, as soon as we're done with this, I'm going to have to go back and play it and listen for it specifically. Um, so, so is everybody else that listens to this. That's awesome. <laughs> that's fantastic. So that's one thing. Um, Ronnie Van Zandt called me on the phone. At this point, I was living in Atlanta. And uh, uh, I'd gone to, uh, there was a club that I went to. I can't remember the name of the club. I used to go every night uh, because uh, they were closed on Mondays. And I went every night and uh, looking for bands or singers or, you know, because that's what I was going to do now. I started my own label. And about the fourth week, I went to the club because a band would play six nights at the club. And then Mondays, the club was closed. So I saw probably four bands play. And then Skinner came in. And I had six nights of it. By the third night, I went and started talking to them. And their manager was with them, which was very good for me. And I said, well, I just started a label and MCA is distributing it. And uh, I would love to sign this band. This band is great. And then the fourth night I went up and they, they didn't have a keyboard player at the time. So there was no keyboard, but I played guitar. And so I went to sit in with them and they lent me a guitar. And I said, what are we doing? I put the guitar on, plugged it in, made sure it was working. I said, what song are we doing? He said, Mean Woman Blues and C Sharp. He's trying to trick you. Huh? He was giving you, that's C Sharp. He was having fun with you. He was trying to show me up. And I laughed. I thought, I thought he thinks I can't play in C Sharp. That's great. I admired that. That's it. I thought, what a great trick that I don't know. That's a good trick. Because Mean Woman Blues is not hard, it's blues. It's not any chords you wouldn't know. So when he said that to me, I was just putting the guitar on and I laughed. I totally got it instantly. Mean Woman Blues and C Sharp, it really made me laugh. And, I, and so I played it and took a solo, and, uh, and then I got off the stage because I, I wanted to hear more of what they did. And, uh, but I'll never forget that because it was very funny. I finally got to see you play live in New York City in 2014. 
And we where did I, where did I play BB Kings? Yeah, BB Kings. It was the oh. birthday celebration uh, thing you were doing there, and and you know you did the meet and greet after, and we briefly met after. And my I brought my son, who at that time was seven and already a drummer, and he oh. just loved you. Um, when you see new generations of people discovering and enjoying your music, how does how does that make you feel? Amazed. <laughs> Amazed. People that people that are younger that know who I am amazes me. I, I'm for old fuddy duddies now. I belong to old fuddy duddies now, and and uh, the most common thing I hear. Um, because I invite email on my website. Because um, what am I doing? I'm sitting around, and and um, and so I get I get uh, a lot of mail, and it's really interesting to me. You know, most people uh, want me to sign stuff, and I don't want to do that uh, because it's a pain in the ass mailing all this stuff. And, uh, and I used to say, you know, well, come to a gig if we come, you know, if we play in your town. And I'd be happy to sign something because that's what I'm doing. But right now I ain't doing that. Yeah. So uh, and I turned down, some people get really mad. You know, but what can I do? I think you and I may share some similar views of current music. Do you feel the capitalistic culture of labels, executives, and production enhances or restricts the art? Or does it do both in different ways? I, I don't understand the question. Well, um, I had um, Livingston Taylor on the show a few weeks ago, and we had an interesting conversation about how record labels and and, and producers are kind of the gatekeepers. And his opinion was that the gatekeepers kind of um, help become a, a standard setting mechanism that elevates the art. Whereas some people feel that producers and so on and so forth. I mean, if you remember like when, when Prince wrote Slave on his face, they have an opposite feeling. And nowadays you got the internet, which in my opinion, kind of has increased the acceptance of mediocrity in, in current music. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, do, do, do you have any opinions on that at all, having worked well, on the sides of the glass? Well, well, the thing I know is, you know, when I put on the radio, I go, well, this music is not for me. And when I think that, I think it's not for me because I'm 77. They're not making music, you know. They're not imitating Sly and the Family Stone. They're doing something else. And, and they have a huge following. So, you know, what am I doing here? So I'm, I, don't, I don't listen anymore because, uh, you know, I might miss something. But then I have younger friends that would tell me about is there a song or incident or moment of influence or otherwise, you know, a moment of influence you've had on something or someone or an event happening that you're most proud of as you look back? Well, I don't understand the proud part. I mean, I was influenced by a lot of things. I mean, something you did. 
I mean, is there a song that you did or an incident that you were involved in or a moment that you influenced in music or otherwise that you look back and you go, I'm so either happy or proud that I did that as you look back on your career? Well, I mean, well, I mean there's like a Rolling Stone. Yeah. Which I'm most famous for. Uh, and, uh, and it's such a funny story that, you know, it works for me. And also that, you know, that was the key to the start of my career. So th that, you know, I can't deny that and, uh, and I can't change it, not that I would want to. And that's what it is. And, and that is an incredible story. And I know you've told it a million times, so I'm not gonna ask you to tell it again, but Thank I do you. know that it's in your book your autobiography, Backstage Passes and Backstabbing Bastards, um, which is now, I guess, in its third printing. And I think recently just sold its 10,000th copy, right? Oh, no, it sold more than 10,000. Maybe, maybe in this printing, it's not 10,000. Um, so I presume those of our viewers who want to buy it, is that something that they can find on Amazon? They can find it on my website. <laughs> there you go. I'm um, no fool. So what is your website? And we'll put it up on the screen. Uh, good question. The, the website of Al Cooper. And that's Cooper with a K. Let's talk about uh, CooperCast, um, also with a K. Um, that's not, now that's on the website. That's where that came from. So tell us, tell our viewers what it's all about, how people can find and enjoy the, the podcast. Is that something you find on the, on the website itself or? Yes, yes. Um, I'll tell you a funny story, which um, I pray you will keep in this interview. Uh, about five years ago, I was invited to speak at MIT. And I live in Boston now, so, you know, it's a cab ride. And... Uh, Plus, I was really honored. That's MIT. And, and I couldn't imagine why they did that because it's not known for music or anything. But I wanted to see MIT. So I accepted. And, uh, and it was some guy in the neighborhood who invited me who uh, taught at MIT when I would walk my dog or I would just go for walks and I bumped into, you know, and people say, are you Al Cooper? And I go, yeah. And I talk to them. And, uh, uh, and I have a, uh, I'm diverging from the subject. Will you allow me? Yeah, go ahead. You said you wanted us to keep it in. So let's do it. Uh, and uh, every year I have a, a, a birthday party at my house and uh, mostly uh, my, my relatives, my wife's relatives and the neighbors come. And I'm very lucky that I have such great neighbors. I have great neighbors, it's really nice. And so, uh, what point was I trying to make? What was the question? Uh, we were talking about CooperCast. And I was asking you to tell people, the viewers, what, tell our viewers what it was all about and where people can find it and enjoy it. And then well, it's, well, it's, uh, well, it's on the website. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we gave the name of the website. And it was the idea 
when I spoke at MIT, uh, when I finished, some guy came up to me and said, um, I just looked at your website. This was pre my website being good. I, that was the, when it was all mostly black and it would talk about where the recuperators were and stuff like that. Is that what you're talking about? Well, I mean, I, I don't even remember it anymore. I just know it wasn't good. He said, your website, what's up with it? I said, I don't know. I haven't looked at it in six years, which was true. Mm -hmm. And he said, um, I would like to fix your website if you would allow me to. And I thought, I can't turn this down. If it's bad, I'll shut it down. If it's good, wouldn't that be fabulous? And he went in and he made it beautiful. Oh, no, it's, it is really, the new website is really nice. And by the way, I do remember the old website. Um, because because I would um, I would check it periodically because to be frank catching you live was was kind of a, a bucket list item for me so I would but the problem was is I was living in the south so I was always looking for where your tour might be when I might have to go back up to New York where I grew up and see if I could catch you when I was there. And it was by fluke, actually, that I got to see in 2014. I just happened to be in New York City at the same time. And I just happened to be in a car driving by the day before. And I saw on the marquee Al Cooper's birthday celebration. And I turned to my wife and I said, we're, we're going to, I think we're going to go see a Broadway play. I said, we're not doing that. We're now going there and we're going to go do this. You're and lucky you could get tickets. We were far, we were we were on the far side of the stage, way in a corner. So basically I saw your back, but I was able to see the keyboards and that was pretty much, you know, I was able to see the back of the organ. That was pretty much it. But we did get to see it and enjoyed it, you know, immensely. Um, so, but yeah, but I remember the old website. So, and I agree, the new website is, 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 is way better. <laughs> well, he, well, he did a wonderful job and, and he's, uh, become a close friend and he's as uh, you know weird and funny as I am and as old so it's 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 a wonderful relationship and he does all these other things too so I don't I don't I only get to see him when we're working on uh, Cooper Kinst. Al thank you so much for being on the show it has been an absolute pleasure ladies and gentlemen Al Cooper. Thank you very much for giving me the chance to yak so much. <laughs> <laughs>